Okay, I'm going to start tonight in this final chapter of John in kind of a roundabout way. I hope you'll stick with me. Um, the first time I ever went to Israel was 2014. And it, I went on kind of a bargain trip. Uh, it was a, a man that was a member of my uncle's church in Victoria um, who led tours to Israel. And when I say a bargain trip, I mean we, we stayed in a hostel in the Muslim quarter of the old city because it was the cheapest. Um, and, and so between uh, the call to prayer every morning at 4 a.m. and the, the dozen other men in my room who were snoring like wounded grizzly bears, I didn't get much sleep that week. And we got up every morning and we're out the door before dawn and we walked the whole time. And I was in my 40s, so I could do it. It was no big deal, but it was, it was an exhausting week. It was not luxurious, but I thanked God for it because I never thought I'd get to go to the Holy Land. I never knew I'd get to go again. Um, but one of the things I was excited about going there for was I knew there were these two different locations that were the, the different possible places where the cross and the empty tomb had been. And I wanted to see for myself. So we went to the, the traditional one first. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Now that's a church with a lot, a lot, a lot of story to it. But the, the brief version is uh, it was planted there because the, the mother of Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, the, the Caesar, his mother Helena was a devout woman and she went to Jerusalem in the 4th century A.D. seeking where Christ was, was crucified and resurrected. And all the locals told her, oh, it's right here and right here. That's, that's where they told her. So they, they built a, a church there. And that church has been there ever since in one form or another. And again, it, long, interesting history with that. But my experience of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was I walked into a place that was nothing like anything in my experience because it was a Middle Eastern Orthodox church. We think of churches and we think of pews and pulpits and maybe stained glass. There's none of that. There's icons, there's lamps, there's incense, there's darkness, there's murals on the walls. Um, that church is shared by five different Christian denominations. And so there's some interesting things that happen. You'll find some old relic or some you know, piece of furniture that's all rotted, and you'll think, well, why is that still there? And you ask the guy, and he says, well, because uh, you know, the, the Russian Orthodox won't let them move it because the Greek Orthodox say that's theirs. And the Greek Orthodox say, well, actually, it's not ours, but you know, the Egyptians might want it. And so it's, these kinds of things happen. Um, and, and you find the place. There are many rooms in that place. There's all kinds of chambers and levels, and you just feel like you're in another planet. And then there are other places where there are relics that people line up to touch or to rub a, a, a handkerchief on. Like there's a, they call it the anointing stone, this long slab of rock where people will line up to just rub pieces of cloth on it and take it back home. And then you get to the place where they, they say the cross was. And then further, a little in a, in a, a few steps away, the place where they think the tomb was. And it's hard to even get close to those because the line is so long. But when you get there, there's so much ornateness, if that's a word, it's hard to even imagine that this, is, this once was an open field. This once was a hill where a cross might have stood, where a cave might have been, where the body was buried. 
So all that to say, I left feeling very unsatisfied my first time. So then a few days later, we went to a place called the Garden Tomb. Now the story of the Garden Tomb is back in the 1800s, there's a somewhat famous uh, British soldier, Charles Gordon, Major Charles Gordon, who was staying in Jerusalem and he looked out his window one night and he, or one day and saw a hill that looked like a skull. They looked like two eyes and a nose of a skull. The hill had these features on, you know, cut into the rock and he thought, that's got to be Golgotha. And our archaeologists did some digging and guess what they found? They found the remains of an olive press. They found an actual tomb, an empty tomb. And they said, this could be the place. So now when you go to the garden tomb in Jerusalem, that's what you see. You see olive grove. You see a, a, a cave with a, round, a circular stone. That stone is something they added. That wasn't found there. But it's an actual tomb that you can walk into and see uh, what the, the original tomb of Christ might have been. Now, the day I went, we had a British guide who led us through. It, it was, it's operated by an English Christian organization. And I remember him telling us that he was from Liverpool. Somebody asked him, well, did you ever see the Beatles? And he said, well, yeah, when I was... When I was a schoolboy, I, I skipped school one day to go to a little pub where they were playing, and we thought that was really interesting, but really neat guy. And at the end, he said, I can't tell you this is where Christ was crucified and resurrected. I just know it was someplace like this. And I went away saying, okay, I'm convinced that's the place. Well, in the years since, I've done a lot of reading, and, and now I've changed my mind. I, I'm more and more convinced the, the traditional site is where it happened. Not that it matters. But I tell all of that story to say this. That day, after we went to the garden tomb, I was feeling pretty sure of myself. And as a good American evangelical Baptist boy, I just felt, can I, can I be real with y'all? I just felt a little superior <laughs> to those people who, who went to the Holy Sepulcher and rubbed their handkerchiefs on that stone and who lined up to kiss this artifact or that icon and I thought, oh well, how silly. Where do you find any of that in the scriptures? And our guide, again, an American Christian who was at least as conservative biblically as I am, he told a story that kind of put me in my place. He said, it's almost like the Holy Spirit knew what I was thinking and put this into his mind to say. He said, you know, sometimes when I'm here by myself, I like to get up early in the morning, which didn't surprise me, we were up every day before dawn, and go to the Holy Sepulchre and just watch, and watch as people line up to go to that anointing stone. And he said, what it makes me realize is some of these people, they've waited their whole lives to get here. Some of them, they've spent all their money just to get here, coming from Eastern Europe or Asia or Africa. And why? They don't know the Bible. They don't know theology. All they know is Jesus is Lord and they need to get close to Him. He said, you and I may quibble with their theology. We may stand there and tell them, well, there's no power in rubbing on a stone. And I'd agree with that. But he said, I think God makes allowances for people who have the right heart. I thought, well, that's a good way to think about it. And the question it makes me ask is, When's the last time that you really came to Jesus without any agenda, 
without any, uh, any sense of pride, any sense of entitlement, just, Lord, I need you. Like those people, not knowing what they're doing, just, I've been told this is where it happened and I want to be there. When's the last time that happened in your life? And the reason I bring all that up, John ends his gospel, this, this incredible story that John has written, with a story about Peter. And it's a story about Peter coming to Jesus. Now that's, that's your, that is your introduction. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 21 of John. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Let me just pause you there, because I need to make a couple of comments. First of all, when we left the disciples at the end of chapter 20, they were still in Jerusalem. And they'd been there since before the Passover. They'd been there at least a week after the Passover. So they were there a couple of weeks at least in the upper room. At some point, excuse me, at some point they said, well, Jesus did say, I'll see you in Galilee, so let's go. So when it says the Sea of Tiberias, that is an alternate name for the Sea of Galilee. They're back home. So it's not surprising that Peter says, okay, I'm going fishing. That's all I know to do. I don't know what else to do. This is what I am. I am a fisherman. The other thing I want to point out is, I don't know if you've ever noticed this or thought about it, but when Jesus came back from the dead, he didn't stay in any one place, it seems, for very long. This is one of those mysterious things. We don't know where Jesus spent most of his time in those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. But it's obvious from this story, he appeared to them on the first Easter Sunday, right? The second time he appeared to them was the second, the second Sunday after Easter when Thomas could be there. And he appeared to other people at various times. We know he appeared to the, the people on the road to Emmaus on that same Easter Sunday and and. Paul mentions 500 different people he appeared to at one time or another, but it seems that Jesus was flitting from place to place, and you never knew where he was going to turn up. This is going to be the third time the disciples will see him. Okay? So, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Again, I need to say, like I said last week when we talked about Mary Magdalene not recognizing Jesus, this does not indicate that he looked different, but maybe the fact that he was on the shore and they were in the boat it's early morning, maybe there was fog. There's no indication that Jesus had some different form. So he's standing on the shore. They didn't know it was him. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, some of those disciples at this point might have been thinking, this seems familiar. <laughs> I think I've been here before. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. 
It's one of my favorite details in this story, in the whole Gospels, in fact, um, is Peter, he couldn't wait for the boat to get to the shore. He had to get there first. And that is one thing you notice about Simon Peter. He liked being first. He liked being first. He was always the first to speak in any conversation. He was the first one to raise his hand and say, I know the answer. He was the first one to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? He was the first and only one when they saw Jesus walking on the water to say, hey, call to me and I'll walk to you. He always wanted to be first. That's why I think it was so hard for him. The night Jesus was, was going to be crucified, remember what he said, if everybody else leaves you, I will never leave you. They may all flee for the hills. I will die before I walk away from you. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, don't you understand? Tonight you're going to deny me three times. He had to be the best. He had to win. Some of you know people like this. Maybe you are one of those people. You know, it's fun to mess with people like that. If you're walking beside them, if you walk just a little faster than they're walking, you can get them to speed up. You can get them to sprint if you just keep going faster and faster because they will not let you win. I think, I think I shared this last week, it must have driven Peter crazy that on the day of resurrection, when Peter and John ran to the tomb, John got there first. And John stopped. And Peter just went right on in, right? But I love this because Peter puts on his outer garment because now all he's got on is his, his loincloth, essentially. He puts on his outer garment. He just dives into the sea like Forrest Gump at Bayou Labattery, right? Just saw, saw Lieutenant Dan and just has to get there. I love that detail because now that idea that I have to be first has been replaced with I just have to get to Jesus, I don't have time to wait for anybody else. I just have to come to him. Verse 8, The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now let me tell you why that's noteworthy. Not that there's anything special about the number 153. By the way, side note, if you ever read books that try to make it sound like that there are number codes in the Bible, throw it in the trash. Okay? That is, that is somebody's way of selling books. That's not, that's not useful. The Bible means what it means. Don't look for codes. Okay. Um, 153. Why is that significant? Because there are people today who will say, the people who wrote the scriptures never meant for us to take them literally. These are just, these are just fun stories. These are just fables. These are just stories they concocted as, as illustrations of, of how powerful God is and the hope that God gives when you're making up stories, when you're making up fables, read any, any children's story, read any myth from the old, religion, the old ancient pagan religions, they don't have details in them. So for, for John to write down 153, that says, I was there, we counted, this was real. So whether you believe the scriptures or not, that's up to you, but don't pawn it off by saying, well, we're not meant to take it literally. The people who wrote this, including the apostle John, meant for us to take this literally. That's why that's important. He says, although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And this is my point. He looked like Jesus. He didn't look like somebody else. He looked like himself. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So you see what's going on here. If you haven't heard a sermon about this, you're a very unusual person because preachers love this. But even if you haven't heard a sermon about this, you, you can tell what's going on here. Just shortly before, just a, a few days before, Peter has stood around a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest's house. And in the light of that fire has denied three times that he knew who Jesus was. So now he sees Jesus and Keep in mind, he hasn't been alone with Jesus yet since the resurrection. Jesus appeared to the disciples twice. Both times it was in a group. He spoke to the group and then he disappeared. Peter hasn't had a chance to sit down with Jesus and say, Lord, are we okay? I'm sorry for what I did. I would do anything in the world. I'd cut off my left arm. I'd give my life if somehow I could take back what I did to you. But since I can't do that, Lord, is there any way you can forgive me? He hasn't had a chance to have that conversation. So when he shows up, when he swims to that shore and he sees that charcoal fire there, there's a reason why John includes that detail. It's because he knew that Peter saw that and thought, oh, Jesus knows what I did. Also, I don't know if there's any significance to the fact that Jesus calls him Simon instead of Peter. Remember, Jesus is the one who gave him the name Peter. And I imagine Peter liked that nickname. Wouldn't you like to be called Rocky if you were a guy like Peter? But he calls him Simon. Again, I don't know if that's significant or not. I just I think it's noteworthy. The, the real thing that people point out is not just the fire and the name, but it's the three times repetition. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times did Jesus ask him, Peter, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? He asked him three times. And Peter's hurt at the third time. You would be too if the person you love most in the whole wide world asked you three times in a row, do you really love me? But later he understood. And I think even that same day he understood. This is Jesus' way of saying, you don't have to ask my forgiveness. I know you love me. And I know. I know what it's like to be human. I've been tempted like you were. I forgive you. You're mine. I still have plans for you. My job for you is still to feed my sheep. And there's no greater honor than that. Verse 18, he goes on though. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say unto you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. That's a chilling couple of sentences because Jesus is telling Peter, 
And Peter seems to understand that he is going to be captured. He is going to be led to his death. He doesn't say how specifically. And the tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. Remember, that's not in the scriptures. That's not something we can take to the bank. But I think we can, we can, we can assume that he was martyred because of what Jesus says here. Notice Peter's response. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Again, it's John. John wants to make sure that we know who he is. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It's a great corrective to us. Because what Peter's saying is, hey, Lord, you're telling me that I'm going to be martyred for my faith. Well, what about him? Is he going to get off scot-free? And Jesus says, let me worry about what's going to happen to somebody else. That's not your job. Your job is to follow me. Always remember that, Christians. Now, are we supposed to bear one another's burdens? Absolutely. Are we supposed to weep when the others weep and rejoice when they rejoice? Of course we are. But when we suffer trials, and we will, there's never a reason to look at somebody else and say, well, what about him, Lord? How come he's not suffering? Number one, you and I have no idea what that person's going through. I hope you've lived long enough to realize that sometimes the people who seem like they're doing great are suffering in ways you can't even realize. You can't even notice that things that would put you under the bed. Number two, even if they're not, even if they're riding high, that's God's business. God is just. We have to trust Him in that. And I know it's hard, and I don't, I don't say this in, in, in a way of rebuke or, or at least not an ugly rebuke, I'd say that. It's a loving rebuke because look at Psalm 73 sometimes. Psalm 73 is all about the psalmist saying, Lord, how come the wicked seem to prosper and I'm suffering? So it's not, it doesn't make you a bad person when you ask those questions. Just understand those aren't fruitful questions. God wants us to follow Him and take care of, of following Him and not worry about the, the circumstances of someone else who doesn't seem to be suffering like we are. But notice that John points out, he says, verse 23, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And I find that those two sentences interesting because what it reminds us of is John is quite possibly the only one of the original 12 still alive at this point when he's writing these words. So you can imagine if all the other disciples died in their young to middle years, they were all martyred as tradition says they were. And here's John, an old man of 90 or 100, and he's still alive. You can imagine that's part of why this legend spread that, hey, didn't the Lord say John's never going to die? And right now he is in his own hand correcting that. The Lord didn't say that. He just said, whatever my will is going to happen. And it takes a lot of humility for John to say that, to say, I, you know, if God wants me to die, I'll die. 
And that's going to happen maybe tomorrow or maybe in 10 years, but I'm going to die. So it's, it's the rare personal touch in a letter or in a gospel in which John has taken such great pains to avoid naming himself. All right? And the last verse in the whole book, which is just incredibly tantalizing, says, verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, if there's no other reason to be excited about heaven, there's one right there, is there's a lot more stories to be told, a lot more things to hear about that weren't written down. And that ought to excite us. Think about what that says, that a man who only lived about 33 or so years could have accomplished that much. We get to hear about it someday. All right, so in conclusion, I, those are always terrible words for a preacher to say. I'm not almost finished, but three things to say before I get done. I shouldn't have said in conclusion. I just teased you. Three things. There are three kinds of people. This story outlines three kinds of people in relationship to Jesus. Three kinds. And the first kind are the people who don't see the need for him. The people who maybe they give him a token respect Maybe they even uh, can do some religious things, but they have no need for Jesus in their life that they can see. Think about the Romans. They had no use for Jesus. The, the credit you can give uh, Pontius Pilate is he was honest enough to admit Jesus had done nothing wrong, and yet he let the, the Son of God walk right out his door and into death. With, without even questioning him about the things that really matter. Think about the religious leaders of Israel. To op the opposite side of the same pole, they had a great interest in spiritual things, thought they were doctrinally correct, and yet they too missed God in human flesh. And it's not just unbelievers. There are people like this in most churches, maybe every church. I... I'm reminded of another pastor who talked about uh, a man in his church. The man and his wife came to this pastor for marriage counseling. And the pastor told them, you know, listen to their stories. He said the woman was very, very emotional. The man didn't seem like he wanted to be there. That's often the case. One of the two doesn't want to be there. But he gave them some what he thought was sound advice, and he sent them on their way. About a month later, the man called him, heartbroken, said, my wife has left me. What do I do? He said, well, come in. And so they had a meeting. The man was very emotional. He was very heartbroken. Uh, and, and so the pastor told him the things he told him before. And he said, what you need to do is call her up and say, okay, it's not going to be the same anymore. I now understand how unhappy you were. And these are the things I will do differently. Is that going to be enough? And he did. And she agreed. And she moved back home. But as soon as she moved back home, everything went back to the way it was before. And this time she left, and this time she left for good. And the pastor wrote this story to say, you know, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. It's one thing to be sad because you've, you, you've acted a certain way and it's had these consequences. We've all been there. It's a very different thing to take responsibility and to truly repent, to truly change. People who are in church, who never change. I mean, I'm not their judge, but it sure sounds like they don't ever open their heart to Jesus. If there's never change there, 
If there's never growth, there's never real repentance, can it be that they possibly never really met Christ? Then there's a second kind, and those are the people who know they need Him, but they can't quite believe in grace. And I think about the rich young ruler. It's a man who came to Jesus with a heart that wanted salvation. But then when Jesus said to him, what you need to do is sell all that you have. That's what's standing between me and you, between you and real discipleship. And he walked away sad. And the reason I say that, that's, that he didn't believe in grace, if you believe in grace, you'll give up anything to get it. Grace is free, but it's so precious you'll give up anything. Grace is enough to compensate for whatever God calls on you to give up. And of course, the great example of not believing in grace is Judas. Because I don't know about you, but I truly believe that if Judas had come back to Jesus with a repentant heart, even after what he'd done, he would have been forgiven. And I don't think Judas understood that. If he would have, I don't think he would have done what he did after the betrayal. You know, we as God's people ought to feel responsible for people like this. Now, on the one hand, there are people out there like the, the rich young ruler, people who have a real interest in spiritual things, who have a real admiration for Jesus, and yet they can't quite understand grace or the gospel. And, and if we as God's people would actually live out the Christian life in a fulfilling way, in a winsome way, if we would show them the joy that Christ brings and the love that he puts in our hearts, maybe they would be willing to give up whatever it took to get to him. And on the other hand, the, the people out there like the Judas, the, the people who have truly broken themselves on the rocks of sin, if they could see in us the mercy and grace of God instead of judgment, maybe they would come to Him. And then there's a third category, and that's people who know they need Him and run to Him. And that's Peter. That's Peter, of course, diving into that water and swimming to Him because that boat's not going to go fast enough. Think about the contrast between Judas and Peter. I don't know which one of them hurt the Lord more, the one who denied him or the one who betrayed him. All I know is the one who betrayed him went out and killed himself, and the one who denied him couldn't wait to get to him because Peter understood grace. Peter understood there's forgiveness with this one. I think also about the sinful woman. We don't even know her name. Came in upon Jesus that week of the crucifixion with the most precious possession she had, that bottle of expensive perfume, and poured it all over him and wept over him. Why? Why would, why would she do something so wasteful? <laughs> because she was passionate about what Christ had done for her, and she just wanted to worship him. That's all that mattered. That's someone who came to Jesus. When's the last time you came to Jesus? To run to him daily to swim to Him daily, to come to Him daily is the only way to really live. And when I say run to Him, I mean every day we've got reasons to repent. Don't, don't get bogged down in or caught up in that, that habit we formed when we were kids of, oh Lord, forgive us for the many ways we failed you. That doesn't suffice. Name what you've done. Say, Lord, I've, here's, here's what I've done against you. Not because we think He's going to fail to forgive us on some technicality, but we need healing. We need to face our sins. That's real repentance. Call upon Him every day with everything you're facing in life. Some, somebody years ago taught me this little outline 
you're ready for your day when you've prayed over your three O's, your obligations, your obstacles, and your opportunities. And I've used that ever since. Your obligations today, I know I need to meet with this person. I need to get this done. I need to finish this assignment. So Lord, give me the strength to do it and do it well. Your obligations, your, your obstacles. I mean, quite frankly, most of those obstacles have names. They're, they're human names, right? They're, they're people who you know are going to come into your life and make your life difficult, but you need strength to deal with them. Some of those obstacles are, are non-human things. Uh, they're, they're trials that you're dealing with in your health, in your finances, in your, and, and, and your job performance, and, and stress, stressors that come into your life. Those obstacles that, that want to distract you from the joy God wants you to have, and then your, your opportunities. Most of those have human names too. This person God wants me to reach out to. This person God wants me to comfort. This person God wants me to rebuke. This, this person who needs my help in some way. Pray about those every day. That's running to Jesus. That's, I don't want to leave the house without making sure that I've shared with Him everything on my heart. And then most of all, running to Jesus means praising Him daily like that sinful woman. He's not here in the flesh, so we don't get to pour perfume over His head or weep over His feet, but we can sing His praise and we can, we can speak His praise to Him in prayer privately. We can go out into the world telling people how good He is, giving a testimony of how good He is. If you don't know how to do it, if you're not articulate, that's, words aren't your thing, one good habit to get into is pick a psalm every day and just rewrite it in your own words. Okay, leave 119 for last. Okay, that'll take you, take you a few weeks. But, but all the other ones, you can do that in, in five minutes. Just write out that psalm in your own words, and it just that's, it gives you words to say to God, reminding you of how good He is. Run to Jesus daily. That's the only way to truly live. And the great thing about this story is it reminds us, doesn't matter what you've done, He'll take you back. Every time you run to Him, He's glad to see you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is a pleasure and a privilege and a joy to hear your story once again. We'll never get tired of it. And Lord, as the last verse of the Gospel of John tells us, there's so many more stories we have yet to hear. So until that time, until that day, we get to start hearing those stories face to face. I pray that we would walk daily in our in, in just a a dependence upon you, leaning upon you for forgiveness, for guidance, Lord, just for the fellowship of being with you and praising your name. Teach us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.